Good morning and welcome to Friday Live here on NET Radio. Much of today's show is pre-recorded as we continue to protect ourselves and our guests from the spread of COVID-19. I'm Genevieve Randall. When we were dating, he would sing to me. (laughs) (laughs) I I did? Yeah, okay. William Padmore meets with artists who are part of an art opening in Grand Island. That's a little later in the show. I'll also visit with the director of the Henry Museum in Kozad. In just a few minutes, we'll talk with the director of Dracula, Mina's Quest, and we'll hear a conversation about Lincoln's Symphony Orchestra's concert tonight. First, Bird Note. Support for programming on NET Radio comes from History Nebraska, recognizing everyday Nebraskans who do their part to preserve and share Nebraska's stories. The history of Nebraska belongs to the people. To learn more, history.nebraska.gov. Support for programming also comes from Cornerstone Bank, a family-owned bank providing custom investments, trust, and estate planning services since 1882 with 46 central Nebraska locations. CornerstoneConnect.com. Cornerstone Bank, building trust on a solid foundation. We will start this week's show with Lincoln's Symphony Orchestra. They present a concert tonight called Fanfares and Anton. The Anton part of that refers to one of my guests here in our next segment, Anton Miller, who is concert master for Lincoln Symphony Orchestra. It's their final in their classical series for this season. And we're also joined, of course, by Edward Polichick, music director for Lincoln Symphony Orchestra, who is going to conduct this concert tonight. 7.30 p.m., it's an online stream. And there is a pre-concert chat a half an hour before the concert. So Ed, Anton, so glad to talk about this concert. First thing on the show here this morning. It's great to be here. It's such a fabulous show. I cannot believe fanfares. And then you've got me. I mean, come on. (laughs) I'm so humble. I know. No, it's a a very cool show. Starts off with... uh, with brass and it's all the fanfare stuff that's you know people know some of it and some of it will be new very heart pounding and and all that and then i get to come on afterwards and play the fabulous tchaikovsky violin concerto which is so exciting people can learn more about this concerto in the pre-concert chat because we will be talking about that but just for our listeners this morning here give us a little bit of an idea of the character of this violin concerto it is a concerto that is sort of uh, one of the, the most beloved violin concertos. And it's just on a grand scale, and it has so many beautiful themes. And it's also fiendishly difficult, which people love the pyrotechnics that the violin has to play. And it really is fun to play. Like, it's, it is, it's a very difficult concerto, but it also just, you know, it, audiences love it. And it's really fun to do all of that kind of technical play um, where you can really feel like everybody's getting energized by it and loving it. So it's got a combination of real sweetness and tenderness and beauty. And then it also has that aspect of just being really virtuoso and, you know, sort of like the, you know, people always say it looks like smoke's going to come out of the instrument because it's so, there's so much stuff going on. And the orchestration is done extraordinarily well, usually for um, violin concertos. You know, the, the, the composers will write maybe too heavy uh, the, the brass parts or too much um, of the accompaniment parts. But Tchaikovsky did an amazing job where all of the orchestral sections are really big and strong and beautiful and, and tremendous. And then when the violin plays, he gives just the right amount 
of accompaniment so the violin can really shine. So it has that sort of aspect to it too, that it is just such a well-balanced concerto. For me, the, the biggest part is that it really has a number of gorgeous themes and just beautiful music. So it's real listenable and everyone will recognize it. It's music that is been been used in movies, of course, and because it's you know it's so popular, I think there's a takeoff on Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. It's not actually the concerto, but in the movie, the right stuff in the big penultimate scene when all the aspirants are coming out and everybody's feeling very patriotic. It sounds just like the, the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. So it has that thing about also being a part of kind of pop culture too, that people really know that piece. I think there's there's a number of pop songs that have used moments from Tchaikovsky Concerto because it's just so wonderful. Lots of recognizable melodies and uh, used in films. Audiences love it. The other part of this whole thing is the great experience that being able to collaborate with maestro Edward Polacek, it's like my favorite thing, and to play with the orchestra. And the orchestra sounds great, and Ed is amazing, and it's just a total, complete, wonderful experience. I'm really grateful. Anton is one of the greatest musicians that I have ever known in my life. And I always, always look so forward, whether we're doing just a little three-minute piece with piano and violin, or we're doing the entire Tchaikovsky uh, violin concerto, it is nothing but sheer joy and great, great music making. He has this soul that's so big, it's all-encompassing. So he just takes all of us into his playing. And the orchestra feels that as well. I mean, it's it's a really very, very special. Thank you, Ed. It's, it's, a, it's a mutual experience. Yeah, it is. It only yeah. happens because of that feeling. Like, it's, right. that's, that's a very special thing that, that we have here in Lincoln, and I love it. Over the years, when you think of all the, the uh, charity that we've done, all of the recitals that we have done, and just sharing that music making with our, our listeners and with our friends and family, they become almost archival um, moments that you always go back to latch on to when you're in a deep moment or an uncomfortable moment or a sadness. It just uplifts as it was as fresh as the day as we, we've done it. And we've done many of them. We really have. I mean, yeah. and we've gone throughout the state with them as well. And I, yeah. I just find it so, so spectacular. Um, yeah. And I know the orchestra feels this way as well. You know, uh, I don't know if our listeners are aware, but Anton predates me uh, with his tenure uh, with the orchestra by about, I think, about 10 years. But sometimes difficult when a, a new music director comes in. Uh, and and the, the relationship with a, a music director, a conductor, and the concertmaster is one of the most important, most critical relationships for the advancement of the institution, of the organization. It has to be very solid. It has to be an open dialogue constantly. It has to be agreement on uh, what you're presenting and how you're proceeding musically, sound-wise, technically, etc. Really, it was very early on, and I, I remember this distinctly. It was shortly after 9-11 in 2001 when I tried to make this journey out here from Baltimore. It turns out that Anton was in Oberlin with his family, and I was trying to take buses to get out here. And I, it was just this zigzag day after day through Maryland and Pennsylvania to get out, out to Ohio. It took three days just of my sleeping on, on Greyhound bus floors to get out there. But they said, if you can get out near Cleveland, or then, then Anton has his car and we, you can both drive out. It happened, and the bonding that happened on that was so 
instantaneous. It really was. And there are a lot of very funny stories, which I won't go into here because we don't have the time, but they were great. And it was from that moment on, I think that the personal met the professional and that that musicianship then became really one. It was two of us in, as, as, one, as one unit. And that's why it is such a special, special event in my life every time we get the, the opportunity to collaborate. Leading up to the Tchaikovsky that Anton is featured on, you've got a couple of fanfares. And one of those is, I have to say, one of my favorite composers, Aaron Copeland, the fanfare for the common man. What a beautiful piece. Since you have just a small string body, you can't have a big, loud orchestra. And so the brass got short shrifted this season. And it was my intention to really feature them on the first part of this with the percussion section so that they get a chance to show their thing, get an, an opportunity to come together as an ensemble. I think, however, knowing that Anton is coming up later on the program, it should probably be retitled as Fanfare for the Uncommon Man. Um, <laughs> is it a good thing or a bad thing, Ed? No, that's a great thing. That's okay. a great, a greatly good okay. thing. Yeah, absolutely. Just to prove that point, that it's not just one fanfare or two fanfares or four fanfares, but five fanfares that we're doing to bring our concertmaster on stage. It's, it's, it's actually a great opening uh, for it. And it's a great time for the brass and the percussion to have to show their stuff. So we do open with the fanfare for the common man uh, of Aaron Copeland. And we go then into this, uh, uh, it's, I, it's, it's kind of a symphony for brass. It's called, uh, I'll say it in English, uh, liturgical fanfares of the French composer Henri Tomasi. Um, and there are four movements, all of which are fanfares. Tomasi being a, a, a devout Catholic, they have these very strong religious Catholic connections. The first one being the Annunciation where the angel Gabriel announces to the uh, Blessed Virgin that she shall conceive the Lord. So, and it goes all the way through an apocalypse at one point. And then the last one, which is a, 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 a procession for Good Friday depicting the carrying of the cross to Calgary. Um, it is, it's brilliant, but it ends with the anticipation of the great, the glorious resurrection. And I think how appropriate now to bring out Anton after that. <laughs> You're resurrecting me. Oh my goodness. It is just the best. It really is. Wow. I must say that it's not a piece that I was familiar with. It was our principal trumpeter who is unfortunately cannot be with us uh, this evening, but Mike Thompson was the one who introduced me to this piece, and I fell in love with it immediately. And I think if you join us tonight at uh, 7.30, you'll get your money's worth on this one. It is just, it's a spectacular opening. Then Barbara and I are going to do some announcement about our upcoming season while we do a massive stage change, and then we will bring out the greatest <laughs> Anton Miller. <laughs> <laughs> it's a spectacular way for us to kind of end our classical music series this season. Well, we're certainly looking forward to tonight's concert, which, again, is streamed online. We'll have a link on the Friday Live page where you can find more information about how to get the link for the stream. The concert starts at 7.30, and a half an hour before that, there's a pre-concert chat. Ed and Anton, it's always good to talk with you. It's been a joy listening to the two of you talk, not only about the music, but about your relationship with each other and the symphony and the audience. Fantastic. Thanks.
We, Thank you. we consider ourselves two of the luckiest guys on earth. We really yes. do. We adore you, Genevieve. Thank you so much for having Thank us you. here. And you're listening to Friday Live here on NET Radio, streaming online at netnebraska.org. Thanks for joining us on Friday Live. I'm joined next in the studio by the director of a show that opened last night, presented by Nebraska Repertory Theater, with shows again tonight, tomorrow, and Sunday, streaming online. David Long is my guest, and he's here to talk about Dracula Mina's Quest. Welcome to Friday Live. Genevieve, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, so we'll start right in with this is an adaptation of Bram Stoker's, Bram Stoker's Dracula, easy right? Easy for you to say, yes. yeah. As easy for me to say, exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about this adaptation. Yeah, so uh, this is written, Dracula Mina's Quest, it's written by a playwright uh, named Stephen Dietz. And Stephen Dietz wrote an original uh, version of this in the probably late 90s. And he, 20 years later, has updated it and I would say through a more of a modern lens in the way that um, the central character is now Mina, and hence the title Mina's Quest. And uh, it, it is more about empowering that character of Mina mm. uh, rather than relying on the, the Van Helsing character who, who kills Dracula. It's, it's oh, I don't want to ruin anything. <laughs> maybe, maybe that didn't happen. Uh, but, the, uh, but the character of Mina uh, takes, takes the lead and, and is empowered through the journey and, and really leads the, the journey of this play and, and as, the, as the main protagonist. And, and for those who don't know the Dracula story very well, mm-hmm. who is Mina and, and what's she like? So um, Mina is engaged to a character uh, named Harker, and uh, she is also best friends with a character named Lucy. And um, so she is, um, she is, she is a, a, this, the principal character of, of this of this journey. And so she's. Um, She's very uh, grounded, uh, very mature, um, and uh, and she she really uh, she really sets sets the tone for the play mm. in terms of um, I don't know her her um, her like I said her groundedness and her, her maturity. Yeah, you mentioned um, modern, which is interesting. When I think about Dracula, my mind goes all the way back to various Dracula stories and tales, I mean, including Nosferatu or, you know, (laughs) and then we've had these more recent things um, from Taika Waititi, you know, (laughs) with what we do in the shadows and there's all all these different connections. So when you say modern, what what is modern about this version? I think what's modern is the empowerment of the female character. And I I think that that's what we're seeing. Before, you know, you look at uh, the past drama and you look at past productions of that, it's um, the women become the victim. Yeah. in these in these pieces and I, and I think that Dietz did a really nice job of, uh, of of flipping that around and and showing that Mina's absolutely capable of not uh, you know, not only leading the journey but taking good care of herself yeah. uh, protecting herself protecting the people that she loves and I think that that's that's really important I think for for a modern audience to embrace now I loved seeing the phrase on the website this play is not recommended for children or the faint of heart yeah how scary is this? Um, 
uh, well, since I directed it, it's not that scary to me, but I'm not looking through that lens. And so I think that there are some, yeah, I mean, the the design of it, it still has that gothic vibe to it, which is really exciting. And there is a lot of blood. Mm. And, uh, you know, we have a, you know, our, our, we have our Dracula and we have we have the moments of, you know, there are some there are some teeth going into necks and uh, there is some kinds of, of sexuality of, of characterization. And so usually it's not the best for small children, uh, but uh, that yeah. will be a that will be a parent determination. But I, I think I think the the a more mature audience will will glean more from this show than I think the younger audience. Okay. Well, David, you and I were talking just a little bit before we went on mic here. You're associate professor of theater and head of the performance area in the Johnny Carson School of Theater and Film. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your path to Nebraska and what it's been like for you since you got here. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I I, uh, I was down in Austin, Texas, for 14 years teaching, and I was cool uh, served as artistic director of a theater down there and, uh-huh. and a professor. And uh, this job came up uh, on what's called Art Search, which is a, a place that we often find faculty-related jobs. And I was really... Um, I was excited because I was ready. I was at a point in my career where I, um, I, I had enjoyed the the artistic director and the leadership part, um, but I, I missed I missed the actor training part, and so I I, uh, I saw this position. I applied for it. I came up and interviewed, and I was fortunate enough to secure the position. And so, I've been this is my second year, and although this. Like we had talked before, this this year has been a challenge, certainly through COVID, and but we do see the light at the end of the tunnel, and we look forward to the continued development of our um, exceptional actor training program that we have here yeah. at UNL. Well, and I think these COVID times have been an interesting part of that training that we didn't expect to have, and I I, I like to think that there is at least some value for students in some of the unusualness that they will carry this forward with them, you know? That's true. I mean, we spent a the whole last year over uh, most classes over Zoom. Um, fortunately, this last semester we were able to be in person. But even on those Zoom classes uh, a year ago when we went on there, um, we still as artists still had to create and we were still uh, we still had to find ways. And, and I think as a professor, it really it had me reevaluate uh, my teaching. It had me reevaluate uh, some of the outcomes that were necessary for that actor training. And so we still found amazing ways and, and very successful ways of creating pieces. In fact, I, I taught a movement class back uh, a couple semesters ago. Uh, and, and we had to go, that's when we went uh, on Zoom. Everything, everything became remote at that point. But we were still creating movement pieces over Zoom. And, you know, we'd put ensembles together and four students would get together and they'd, they'd figure out how to, how to uh, adapt the frame of the Zoom of uh, the Zoom meeting to uh, create a movement piece and still connect with each other as human beings. And I think that that was a really important part. Is still not feeling isolated during that time, but finding a way of of connection and creation during that time. Speaking of um, movement and some of those studies, um, I briefly want to touch on you studied stage combat, which that's a specialized skill. That made me think, reading that, how um, there's a certain timing and skill to different genres, like comedies have to have timing, right, whether it's physical comedy or, you know, whether that's some other type of comedy. What about scary shows or horror shows? What's specific to that? Well, I think think it's that... um it's the idea of tension and release, right? Uh-huh. It's that idea of building tension 
and then the timing of release. Like you, and, and there's a lot of, you know, in, in comedy, there's a lot of things like false exits and pratfalls. And, and, but there's, there's a way in, in uh, I think, in kind of this horror genre, it's um, to, uh, to lead the audience down one way and then a radical change of direction to shock them, right? So I think <laughs> yeah. that there's, there's those, kind of, those kinds of setups that we can use directorially to still build that tension. And, you know, you think that person's going to get away, and then, of course, they don't. <laughs> so, and I think, right. that the, I think the audience is always rooting for the, for the underdog in that, in that case. And then in Dracula, well, the underdog doesn't always win, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but ultimately, well, yeah, you'll have to see it. Okay. <laughs> well, the scary show in question is Dracula, Mina's Quest, and my guest, David Long, is the director for that show, presented by Nebraska Repertory Theater online with shows streaming tonight, tomorrow, and Sunday. Thanks so much for telling us about this show. Gosh, I'm so excited. I can't wait for people to go see it. It's going to be amazing. Or see it online. (laughs) Yeah, and you can link to more about how to see that online from Nebraska Rep, or you can link to more information about anything you hear about this morning. That is all on our website. Look for Friday Live at netnebraska.org slash radio. Stay with NET Radio. Friday Live has much more in store with poetry from Stacey Waite, events in COZAD, and a review from Waquito Dreyer of a film at the Ross Media Arts Center. I'm William Padmore with Friday Live, and today I'm joined by a few special guests. Jack and Norma Stevens and Mike Watt all have work featured in today's first Friday art opening at the Studio K Art Gallery. Jack and Norma Stevens, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Our pleasure. Tell me a little bit about yourselves. Uh, Where do you come from, and how did you get into the art world? I was uh, a native of Atwood, Kansas. It's just 55 miles from McCook. I always loved art and colors. We had art in the grade school, nothing in the high school. I got my degree not in art, finished my education degree in Kearney, and I taught for about eight years, and then our sons were coming to the school where I was teaching. I thought it was just time for me to make some changes. So I started taking classes from Don Dernovich, who is absolutely a phenomenal teacher, and uh, he's retired now, but he, he continues and still paints. Through the Association of Nebraska Art Clubs, with their conferences each year, they would hire a nationally known artist to come to the conference and conduct workshops. That helped my art career in entering local competitions and national competitions and getting accepted into some of those was pretty wonderful. So, Jack, you go ahead now. I lived in Cambridge, graduated, however, in uh, McCook because we went through a flood in Cambridge. So my interest, however, was two different things, music and um, photography. I was with the Air Force Band in Washington, D.C., sang with a group called the Coochies. I was a vocalist with them, and I studied voice in New York City with John Quinlan. Also, Frank Sinatra studied with uh, Quinlan. Then I toured with Bob Hope. That would be a highlight. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We can't can't just drive past that. You toured with Bob Hope? With the Coochies, the group, the six-piece combo, 
Yes, I'd come home on uh, leave, got a phone call to uh, fly to Denver and then fly on to uh, L.A. You must have quite the singing voice then. That must have been no joke. I'm going to climb in here because he, he has an, a naturally gifted voice. When we were dating, he would sing to me. <laughs> I, I did? Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, I, I always loved to take black and white photographs. So my favorite was Ansel Adams, you know, in black and white. He was a fantastic uh, photographer. I'd never met him, of course, but my main life's work was being a tailor and a furrier. Norma, you're going to be watercolors and then Jack photographs? There'll be nine countries that we've traveled to and 48 states. So from those and travels, that's where Jack... That's where I've taken my photographs. Some of these photographs. And the, probably the most unusual one would have been parasailing. And the guy said, uh, you don't take camera. I said, yes, I do. <laughs> so parasailed and... Uh, Acapulco. Norma, what about you? What sort of watercolors can we expect? I like a variety of subject matter that attracts my attention. I don't care to keep repeating too much of a subject matter. I love gardening. I love flowers and the beauty that uh, it takes your breath away. I say that color and light are like gifts from God. You'll see some florals there. You'll see a piece that was based on a theme from Impact of Couser's poetry. Oh, our, our, our very own Ted Couser. Yes. Sometimes when you're given a topic, you go to places you never would have gone with ideas and working out. What, are, what am I actually going to paint? This poem was called The Iris House. Because and I, it fascinated me because he described the roots looking like forks and knives. And so I have a single iris, and then down at the bottom I have a gray house, and then I have the roots looking like knives and forks. Someone asked on Facebook this morning, what's your favorite color? I said, all of them. It's a good answer. Maybe not yellow ochre, but... <laughs> I've been talking with Jack and Norma Stevens. Joining me now is Mike Watt. What kind of art will you be presenting at the First Friday? It's going to be woodworking. Unique work, bowls, turning bowls, and also some jewelry boxes. And how did you get into woodworking? What's the story behind that? Well, I've liked woodworking... A long time, most of my life, actually. I think maybe my grandfather had it. He chopped down an apple tree in his backyard in Fremont, Nebraska, and started making violins out of it. And when my dad retired from teaching, he started carving. And without any lessons, he was pretty good. So this runs deep in the blood, then? I think so. And uh, so tell me a little bit about yourself, actually. Uh, so your grandpa, at least, was in Fremont. Where did you grow up? Mostly in Nebraska, different towns, Norfolk, Fremont, Columbus, here in Grand Island, St. Louis, Missouri, and I was born in Wisconsin, actually. I'm curious, when you talk about woodwork, that's a very labor-intensive process. What is it about the feeling of 
woodworking that you appreciate? I like the wood. I like the look of the wood, the grain and all of that. The work is fun. It's interesting. It's challenging. And when people uh, view some of your work at the first Friday, are you hoping they take away anything special from your art? Or do you hope they just appreciate a fine crafted jewelry box or bowl? I hope that they can appreciate it. I hope they enjoy looking at them. Now, is this the first time you've displayed some of your work, or have you been doing this for a while? This is the first time it's been something like this. Well, I have to work in the Studio K Art Gallery here in Grand Island. Well, I've just been doing this a few years now. Oh, wow. So you're uh, you're somewhat of a newbie then. Yes and no. I work construction, and I've been doing it for quite a while. But I retired as a carpenter and started doing it more often. So what's next for you? Uh, where, where do you hope to take your woodworking career now? Not so much a career, I guess. It's just something that I enjoy doing. Are you working on anything right now? I've got a couple bowls that I'm working on. And do you do this by commission or request, or is this just you doing it purely out of pleasure? For the most part, I do it purely out of pleasure. You know, I can just come up with my own ideas and that, but I do commission stuff sometimes because I make furniture also. All right, Mr. Watt, that was all of the questions that I had. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. I've been talking with Jack and Norma Stevens and Mike Watt, local artists featured at today's first Friday art opening in Grand Island at the Studio K Art Gallery, opening at 6 p.m. Central. I'm William Padmore with Friday Live. Nebraska native and UNL lecturer in English, Chris Harding Thornton has a new novel called Pickard County Atlas. All About Books host Pat Leach said some reviewers calling the book rural noir, but Thornton isn't so sure. It's more like of a what happened story than a whodunit, I guess. The book is it's definitely not a conventional thriller. I've, I've read thrillers. I enjoy a lot of thrillers, but it, it, this is it's much more like a family drama with suspense. Everybody, uh, everyone's family, I think most families are a little bit messy. Um, <laughs> I think that's probably fair to say. <laughs> I think it's pretty, pretty safe to say. Hear more from Nebraska author Chris Harding Thornton about her ideas and experiences behind Pickard County Atlas. The interview is on our website, netnebraska.org slash allaboutbooks. I'm Dave Hughes. Stacy Waite is author of Choke, winner of the Frank O'Hara Prize for Poetry, Love Poem to Androgyny, The Lake Has No Saint, winner of the Snowbound Prize, and Butch Geography. Waite's poems have been published in Court Green, Black Warrior Review, and Indiana Review. Additionally, Waite's book, Teaching Queer, Radical Possibilities for Writing and Knowing, was published in 2017. Today, Waite reads us two poems. One of the things I, I think a lot about is childhood, the way gender played a role in my childhood, and also the way it plays a role in how I raise my own kids, who are three and seven years old. I'm going to read a few poems that have to do with my experience of gender as a young queer person. This is called The Hitman. I'm a nine-year-old girl. All I can think about is Don Mattingly. 
Mattingly was a no-frills hitter, something endlessly compelling about how relaxed he was, his hands loose around the grip of the bat, his eyes clear and meditative. He never stood still after hitting a home run to admire it. He never strutted, but people still called him Donnie Baseball or sometimes the Hitman. I'd watch the Yankee games holding my peewee Louisville slugger. I'd mirror him in the living room, my mother yelling from the kitchen, if you swing that bat in the house, I swear to holy Lord. I was careful. I'd wait until my mother was a safe distance from the room. I'd make sure there was no chance of disaster. I used the camcorder held up to the television to tape Mattingly's at bats so I could play them in slow motion. But I was not Don Mattingly. At least not until Little League, when Brian's dad says to my dad, loud enough for me to hear after I hit a single to right center, rounded first base, and put my hands together for one single Mattingly clap. He says, she hits like Donnie. My body lights up in recognition. I tell the librarian at school, Mrs. Sullivan, about my batting average. That's pretty impressive, sir, she says on a day I stayed to laminate book covers in the back room, a job given to only the most careful and efficient library aide. Mrs. Sullivan only called me sir in private. She'd come to the back room and say, how many books covered, sir? Or sometimes she'd walk me out to the late bus and say, see you tomorrow, sir. Sometimes, even now, I dream I am marrying Miss Sullivan and I am wearing a tie, the sharpest, simplest tie. In the dream, I am Donnie, the hit man, the kind of man for whom being a man is nothing special. Nothing whole. This next poem is called 1986. Papa don't preach, hit the billboards. Our father said we couldn't listen to the song because of Madonna, because of pregnant teens and white dresses, but we listened anyway. Two rebellious girls, one of us less than half a girl, holding our kid palms over the boombox as if it were a gas stove for cold hands, waiting for the radio to play Madonna so we could press record, own the song for no cost. We'd hoped they'd play it before my father got home, before his keys jingled at the door like a chorus of rusted wind chimes. We were best friends and nine and already tired of being told what to do, already grown stone sick of every cruel thing our fathers did to keep us from evil. We are about to find out that he's already home, already in the kitchen, mad about the music, mad about Lionel Richie and Billy Ocean and Prince and all the best pop stars two sunburned kids can imagine in 1986, but Madonna? Madonna is about to take him over the raging edge. I want to tell them to plug the headphones in and share them, to tape the song another day, to slip out the sliding glass doors and stay out long enough he'd forget what he'd heard, long enough for his whiskey to take to doing what whiskey does. But the two nine-year-olds, they love Madonna so much they wouldn't hear me. 
They just hold their hands out over the tape deck, wait for the opening notes of the song to arrive, wait to be punished again for the things they love. Stacy Waite read us 1986 and The Hitman. Waite is associate professor of English and graduate chair at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and also serves as the Lincoln coordinator for the Nebraska Writers Collective Louder Than a Bomb Youth Poetry Program here in Nebraska. Center for the Arts in Lincoln is hosting a brand new event. Fest is a brand new event this year. It's a fundraiser that we're doing and kind of in replacement of our art auction this year because every year before we've been able to fundraise via selling art at an indoor art auction event. Hear more about Mayfest and First Friday events at the Lux Center on this week's Friday Live Extra podcast. Find wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at netnebraska.org slash radio. And be sure to check out the arts calendar on our website. There are online only or other socially distant events there. In addition to some in-person, feel free to submit your own arts or humanities event. The address to find events or add your own is netnebraska.org slash radio. Just click events. Here are some highlights. Capital Jazz Society presents Rat Pack Jazz on their first Friday series tonight, streamed live on the Capital Jazz Society Facebook page starting at 830 in Nebraska City tomorrow, starting at 10 a.m., the Missouri River Basin Lewis and Clark Visitor Center hosts its annual Native American Artifact Show, including a 1 p.m. presentation called Lewis and Clark Meet the Sioux. And Tuesday evening at 7, the Old Voca Schoolhouse will be streaming a harmonica helper workshop. For more information about these and other events, visit our website, netnebraska.org radio. Support for humanities-related programming on NET comes from Humanities Nebraska, delivering opportunities to engage with history and culture. On the web at humanitiesnebraska.org. Support for programming also comes from Brian Luther at Compass Financial Resources, helping Nebraska educators better understand their pensions and retirement benefits through educator workshops. For dates, locations, and individual consultations, compassnebr.com backslash upcoming events. Support for programming also comes from Union Bank and Trust with hardship loans and special considerations to help customers through these uncertain times. The people of UBT are here for Nebraskans and available by phone anytime. Member FDIC. Interstate 80 in Kozad, Nebraska, you will find the Robert Henry Museum with the largest collection of Henry's artwork on display. They're reopening for the summer, and Executive Director Peter Osborne joins me to talk about the museum, Henry's work, and what's been going on. Peter, it's great to have you back on Friday Live. It's nice to be here with you again. Well, thanks so much. I'm wondering, what is the museum's regular schedule through the year? And was this last year different at all due to the pandemic? In terms of last year, I would say our attendance was down 
by more than half. It was tough for everybody. But almost as soon as the pandemic began, we saw just a, really a tip-off of in our attendance. Uh, we closed, as most people did. But then uh, for Memorial Day weekend, we decided that if we could take precautions like masks, social distancing, and limiting the number of people in a room at a time, that that would answer the call. And so after Memorial Day until the end of October, we were open. But we canceled all of our major indoor programs and our Christmas program um, just because we didn't want too many people in the building. Starting off your spring and summer here this year, you've had a couple of events already, the Heritage Hero Award. How is that earned and who was the recipient of that? History in Nebraska has a local program that um, I think last year 44 different individuals received the award, but a organization nominates um, an individual. In our case, it was Marlene Geiger, who's the president of our museum, and she was nominated for the award and was the recipient of it. And then there was uh, someone here from uh, History Nebraska that um, made the presentation to her. So Marlene has been the president of our museum for many years, active in the museum almost since its founding, and is kind of the corporate memory of our operations here, and uh, a great leader, great boss. And she has uh, done uh, really fabulous things for most of her 30-some years that she's been involved here. I see this last week you've had a a dedication. We uh, dedicated a war memorial to Robert Lair, who was a Korean War uh, Air Force pilot who was killed in North Korea, shot down, and was initially listed as the POW and then uh, finally declared dead after the war was over with. He was shot down by one of the... Soviet Union's ace pilots. He lived on a farm just south of town, got a college degree, went on to serve in the Air Force, was shot down, and his wife uh, was pregnant, and his son was born, I think, several months after he was killed. And so the son was here. It was just very touching to hear him talk about this person who was his dad, but someone he never knew, But every time he would talk to somebody, they would know uh, Robert and say, oh, I remember this about him or that about him. So it was kind of an interesting, bittersweet moment, to be sure. But it was also, as I was sitting listening to all the presentations, it's one of these things that makes small towns such a great place to live because there were people there who could remember uh, Robert Lair. And there were also people who just came to honor the service of this uh, Air Force pilot who flew a, a jet plane. The memorial is on property that we own that was given to us by his family years and years ago. So it's a brand new memorial, and it's just a block away from the museum. Some of the programs that you've had in the past, you know, they'll include Artist of the Month, Artist in Residence, and then the Henry Arts Festival near his birthday in June. And I noticed that you do indeed have an Artist of the Month here for May. Hannah Brock, who's from Lexington, goes to school in Omaha, is uh, our Artist of the Month right now. And boy, her work is just amazing. And her work will be here until the end of May. What kind of work does Hannah Brock create? She did uh, the six or seven paintings that are on display here are of children, very realistic style, and just capture the children and what they were doing. And it's just an amazing show. 
I see that there's um, maybe some new work that's at the museum. And then meanwhile, the Robert Henry Museum has lent out a couple of Henry pieces. The jewel in our crown, Queen Mariana, which was a painting that was done in 1900 by Robert Henry, and it was a copy of a painting by Diego Velasquez, who was the great Spanish portrait painter of the 1600s. That painting is on a national tour right now, and at the moment it's at the Chrysler Art Museum in Norfolk, Virginia, and then it goes up to the Milwaukee Art Museum in a couple weeks, and it's part of a larger exhibit um, called Americans in Spain. It's of Queen Mariana, who was the queen of uh, Spain uh, in the 1600s, and she has a pretty dour look on her face, I have to say, in the painting, but you have to remember that she had just been married to her uncle, and uh, who was 30 years older than her, so that probably would make anybody unhappy, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is an amazing painting. And then we've borrowed two paintings, one from Paulson, Inc., from, uh, which is owned by Larry Paulson, a very prominent member of our community here in central Nebraska, but also uh, on our board. And it's a painting called Far Rockaway. And the painting was painted in 1902. And we've done some research on it. And Far Rockaway is on the south side of Long Island in New York City. In July of that year, he decided to leave his home at Gramercy Park at the southern end of Manhattan, go out to Far Rockway, did a sketch, and then came back and painted that the next day. And it's an amazing painting. It's considered to be one of the finest landscapes of the early 20th century of any American artist. So it's a very significant painting, and it will be on display until the end of October here. And then the second painting is from Mona, or Museum of Art. And that painting is of a Normandy farmhouse, and it's on loan to them uh, from Jane Roman, who's also a member of our museum. We think it's a matching painting, of, a, and it's a painting called Normandy Interior, which we actually think is the inside of the building that's pictured in, in Jane's painting. All right. Well, Peter Osborne is executive director there at the Robert Henry Museum in Cozad, Nebraska. The museum has some new paintings on loan, some of their paintings out on loan, and an artist of the month for May and much more. Peter, thanks so much for talking about all of the new things going on at the Robert Henry. Keep in touch with us. And thanks, Genevieve, so much for calling us. We are, it's a great pleasure for us to be with you. And to link to the Robert Henry Museum website, head to our website. That's at netnebraska.org slash radio and look for the page for Friday Live. If this is the time when you have to get out of your car and you're feeling that pain that you might miss something on the show, don't worry. We podcast the show each week and you can look for that later this afternoon on our Facebook page or on our website. That address is netnebraska.org. Chris McKim reminds us of a time when the AIDS pandemic ravaged communities in his documentary Voinarovich, now showing at the Ross Media Arts Center in Lincoln. Well, Kittle Dreyer has this review. 
really like rich people. <laughs> so he took all this garbage off of the street and put it into the installation. Chris McKim patiently takes us through the searing world of the controversial, the outspoken, the outrageous artist David Vojnarovich. Vornarovich died of AIDS July 22, 1992, at the age of 37, and just as the revolutionary artist feverishly worked to send his message to the world, McKim has produced a documentary that moves at warp speed. The place is Manhattan, a city desperately trying to hoist itself out of its own crime and drug-riddled misery. The time is the late 1980s and 90s. The nation is reeling from the AIDS epidemic. The loud cry in the queer community is silence equals death. Vojnarovic took that to heart and used his voice as a jagged-edged knife to cut through leathered flesh of homophobia and HIV-AIDS prejudice and ultra-classism. The artist engraved his rage via painting, stencil, and photography. At times, curators judged his art too obscene to be shown. Autobiography plays a major part in the documentary as McKim uses Vojnarovic's recordings to illuminate his life story. I grew up in a tiny version of hell called the suburbs. I had a father who brutalized both his first and second wives with physical violence. Any signs of life in the family he supported with his paycheck from his job as a sailor was met with extreme violence. In the universe of the forest, I can think of what it felt like as a five or six year old being dragged out of basement stairs and have my head and body hit with a dog chain. Essentially, Vonarovich had to forage for ways to exist, and in his search, he landed into the sex trade. There, he earned a living as a hustler in his 20s to keep himself in one piece and emerged as an iconoclastic artist who came of age after returning to New York from a stint in Paris. McKim showcases Vojnarovich without the presence of his critics, but the archival footage of newsreels unveils their displeasure. The director's interviews with his friends offset these criticisms as it features a coterie of those who loved him and understood his vision. Throughout the documentary, it is as if McKim plasters Vornarovich into every crevice of not only the Lower East Side of Manhattan. In addition, Vornarovich roams the art galleries, even if he is not there. His absence is a presence. A poignant entry in the documentary is Vornarovich's HIV-AIDS political activism. Here, we witness the artist's keen eye on the health disparities in the treatment of this deadly virus. They were strapping minority babies to beds and giving half of them placebos. Basically, they're stealing these babies from their parents, saying this is the only way your baby can get treatment. Sign this form killing half of them purposefully with placebos. For all of the trauma the nation has experienced in the last few years, McKim's Vornarovich is a friendly, mm, friendly reminder of a time when death feasted on young bodies, gnawing on them for long periods of time until it decided when the time was up. 
a friendly reminder when the cries of silence equals death and civil rights or civil war yelled at politicians, screamed for vaccines against this deadly virus. Mm, sound familiar? And held the Food and Drug Administration accountable. It's like a machine that runs itself, that can't stop. It can run by itself, think by itself, police enforce it, schools enforce it, government officials enforce it, even the stupidity of large populations enforce it. Bonarovich plays through May 20th at the Ross Media Arts Center in Lincoln for Friday Live. I am Waquetal Dreher. I'm Genevieve Randall, and this is Friday Live with news and music that inspires Nebraska. You're listening to NET Radio and netnebraska.org. The... Excuse me, the last time I talked with Sam Stacy, the Lincoln native who was on NBC's The Voice and had joined Team Blake at that point, that, that was what was going on in his life. And now he's gearing up for a free concert at the Lead Center for Performing Arts, which can be attended in person, or you can stream that concert online as well. So we're going to catch up with Sam here. Sam Stacy, we talked on the phone before, so I'm really happy to have you right here in the studio. Hey, we're real people. We're real people. Look, you exist. <laughs> We've got a little plastic sheet between us, but we're still real people. <laughs> but we're still real people, that's right. Well, so this Sunday, 7 p.m., what music are you playing on the lead stage? Is it your own stuff or yeah, a mix? Or? It's gonna, I'll be playing a bunch of originals, and then I'm going to probably get the uh, one of the songs I played on The Voice in there, just because that seemed like a good thing to do. <laughs> and then I'm actually going to have my old Southeast choir, Ars Nova, come up and do a song with me as well. That is so cool. Is, are some similar? Is the same person directing that yep, ensemble? I just Facebook messenger and figured everything out. <laughs> oh, that's that is so nice. I always say I feel like there's something in the water at Southeast High School here in Lincoln, Nebraska, because there's been a lot of great musicians who have come out of that school. Do you have any theories about why that? I is? don't. We, we've got a pretty good department of just like the music. There are a lot of different choirs. You can there are a lot of different band and orchestra activities, and you can really get in and, and you take time out of the class day to do it they're not just extracurriculars a lot of them so like the uh, the choirs i was in there there it's a period in your day that you go and it's an everyday thing and that that everyday practice or even everyday warming up really hones skills pretty well yeah yeah that sounds good well I, you know when you're growing up you like music i'm a musician too i mean i understand that but then what was your vision for your adulthood, did you envision having A, a career in music, B, a show at the Lead Center? I mean, the Lead Center was here when you were yeah. growing up in Lincoln, right? Yeah. Um, I No, no, no. I I went to school for economics. I was doing music the whole time, and I it was sort of in the back of my mind of like, oh, this that would be fun. Um, <laughs> but then eventually, once I got my degree and I moved back to Lincoln and worked at Nebraska Bank of Commerce for a little bit, I was also gigging. And um, I just like was enjoying that, and I realized that I didn't have that many responsibilities, and there would never be an easier point in my life just to go try it. I didn't have, um, I didn't say to myself, okay, this is now what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. It was more of a let's do this journey and see where it goes. Wow, oh, an experiment. It was an experiment. Yeah. <laughs> it is an experiment. That's the fun part. It, it continues to be an experiment. It always, yeah. 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 <laughs> 
Well, I think if listeners go and check out the November 12th Friday Live Extra, mm-hmm. um, they can get some more of your background. But if listeners didn't watch The Voice, there's kind of a gap between then when we talked before and now. Um, at that point, we had only seen one episode when you joined Team Blake. So what happened after that? Well, I have bad news. Oh. <laughs> so I... Uh, it was me and a, another guy in the knockout round. So we're singing a song at the same time. And the song that they chose just happened to be his most watched YouTube video and the song he sang to his wife at his wedding. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I, I knew from the get-go once we got the song that it was not looking great for the continuation. It's but it was still tough competition. It was still wonderful. <laughs> <It> was <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, even with that... It probably changed some... What happened as a result of that, do you think? Are you feeling sort of the ripple effects? There was definitely a a big bump on social media. Mm. Just the the general buzz around stuff. Um, More more engagement on a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I mean, more opportunities like the lead center reaching out and saying, hey, do you want to do a show? (laughs) (laughs) Like that... That did not happen before. (laughs) Well, so primarily you're living in Los Angeles these days, but you're back here in your hometown for this concert. Mm -hmm. Is this your first time back since the pandemic started? Oh, since the pandemic? Um, No, I came back at, when was it? I can't even remember when it was. It was during the pandemic at one point, because I I remember I gave my mom a hug with a mask on. So there was, at some point I was back one time. Well, it's good to have you back again. Yeah. And then after this concert, to, um, not tonight, but this Sunday, w- what's on the horizon for you? Well, I'm going back to Los Angeles. I drove here, so I'm taking the good long drive back, and I'll probably be... I, I actually don't mind that drive because I split it up into a few days, and I will see friends in Denver or and just like go on hikes in Zion National Park in Utah as I go back through and just sort of make a trip out of it. Beautiful. Um, then I get back to Los Angeles and I find a new place to live because our lease is getting up and everybody's moving out of the house. And so that's the immediate thing on the horizon. <laughs> and then I just need to pump out some more music. I've got a few things on uh, on the plate that need to be pushed off the plate into the world. Well, I've noticed, you know, you've got a couple, uh, if people go to your YouTube, they, they'll find some videos and it's, you've been producing some things here and there. I'm wondering, is there a Sam Stacy album coming up? There may be. There may be. There may be. I think the the way the industry is going right now, I think single releases tend to be um, better bang for your buck. Okay. Just like having a a few singles, releasing them, and then maybe releasing those singles plus four more songs as an EP uh-huh. seems to be the route I'm seeing other people in my peer group do and have success with. So that sounds like probably the route it would go unless... All of a sudden, I get a really good studio and like, let's just pump out 15 songs. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Well, we'll we'll keep our eyes out for for what you're up to. Lincoln native Sam Stacy, the lead center for performing arts, is hosting him in a concert this Sunday at 7 p.m. And there are both in-person and online options. And don't worry, we will have a link to more on the Friday Live page where you can find that at netnebraska.org. Sam, I'm wondering if I could put you on the spot and maybe give us like a sung version of this is Friday Live? Oh, man. Um, what do you think? How, just like... Just it, an improvised, right, you know. Okay. <clears throat> this is Friday Live. Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> and you are listening to NET Radio. Thanks, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Friday Live here on NET Radio, streaming online at netnebraska.org. The Bellevue Little Theater's current production runs through May 16th. KVNO's Corbin Hirschhorn has more. Going on now at the Bellevue Little Theater, The Outsider, a political comedy new to Nebraska. With the makings of a Frank Capra film, The Outsider characterizes the American political machine. Director Mario Luca Thyberg. It's actually quite a delightful piece. It is about a gentleman who is a lieutenant governor. And because the governor of the state has, is forced to resign because of a scandal, he is now governor. But he's uh, not your typical politician. He's the one who likes doing all the backs behind the scenes work. And now he's thrust into the open. He doesn't do well. And this is the whole, the whole plot revolves around how the machine of politics is different from the work of the government sometimes. While the last year has been difficult for everyone in the arts, Bellevue Little Theater has done everything within their capabilities to bring safe productions to the stage. Well, as as far as this piece goes, Bellevue Little Theater has been continuing to try and produce live theater throughout the COVID uh, crisis. Uh, but we have chosen smaller cast shows so that our actors can be safer. And as far as design goes, because this whole play takes place in three days, it's pretty simple. It's one room, couple of costumes. Uh, it is a governor's mansion, though, and it's quite lovely. The actors have worked with masks, and they will be performing with face shields. The audience will be in their, their groups, socially distanced from other groups. And the audience wears masks. We take temperatures. and But it's a delightful piece that I think everybody will enjoy. And it's a nice way to step into live theater more fully with this grand comedy. The Outsider is playing now at the Bellevue Little Theater, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays until May 16th. For more information or tickets, go to bellevuelittletheater.weebly.com. For Friday Live... I'm Corbin Hershorn. Coming up this morning on NET Radio, classical music on morning concert, and this afternoon, Laura Black and Classics by Request. Be sure to visit the NET website for podcasts of the show at netnebraska.org slash radio. Portions of Friday Live are pre-recorded. Thanks to everyone who makes Friday Live possible, including Carrie Meese, William Padmore, and associate producer Dave Hughes. I'm Genevieve Randall. Support for programming on NET Radio comes from Max Creek Winery, celebrating over 20 years of winemaking in Lexington with a commitment to sustainability. Max Creek offers wines, hard cider, craft beer on tap, and patio seating overlooking the vineyards. Open year-round, seven days a week with curbside delivery. MaxCreek.com. Support for programming also comes from the Nebraska Repertory Theater, presenting a virtual performance of Dracula Mina's Quest by Stephen Dietz, a new adaptation of the classic horror tale. These online performances run from May 6th through the 9th and are not recommended for children. Tickets and info at nebraskarep.org.